Well, good evening, everybody. Can you hear me if I speak into this microphone? Um, I'm Tony Giddens, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to this event tonight, put on by the sociology department, the most dynamic and progressive department in the LSE. <laughs> um, <laughs> our speaker tonight is Julie Wiseman, who is professor of sociology in the uh, sociology department. She is actually the Anthony Giddens Professor of Sociology, which is me. And uh, I just have to say, in this public setting, thanks to everyone who provided the funding for this chair. This happened when I stepped down as director of the LSE, and it was a tremendous gesture on the part of the donors to fund the chair. And I particularly like to thank Richard Geltz, thank Richard Geltz, one of the members of the Court of Governors who was a major figure in achieving that. Our speaker, Judy, has held a variety of uh, academic posts, uh, including the one at the LSE, most notably at the Australian National University. She wasn't all that pressed for time at that point, since she used to send me loads of postcards from the beach at Sydney. Now, of course, she just sends selfies on her uh, mobile phone. Press for time, um, continues Judy's long-standing interests in the social aspects of technology, uh, about which she's published prolifically across the years. She's one of the most distinguished figures in the world in this area. A lot of the book is about digital technologies, and this is surely appropriate given the ubiquitous role they have in our lives. To me, this is possibly the greatest era of technological transformation ever because it's so fast and so global. The internet has only existed for about 20 years and it is everywhere. It's totally amazing. Nearest analog in the past is probably the invention of writing, which took 10,000 years minimum to reach even a few elites around the world. If you think of mobile phones, they've been in existence as computers for only about 15 years. Now there are as many mobile phones in the world as there are people, though not everyone has got one. It is completely, to me, mind-blowing, the level, the pace, and the scope of technological innovation affecting the intimacies of our lives as well as the grand issues on a global level. Well, today, Judy has the perfect discussant. Genevieve Bell, sitting there, anthropologist, but also a major figure in the company Intel. Her own book with Paul Dorish is a study of what they call Ubicomp. Who knows what Ubicomp is? There you go. It means ubiquitous computing. In other words, it's everywhere in our lives. I'd be surprised if there isn't someone looking at a mobile phone as I stand here, or you certainly will be. Oh, no, you won't be during the course of the lecture, of course. <laughs> Nevertheless, I mean, the, the penetration of these gadgets into our everyday lives is quite um, extraordinary. Can I just mention, um, there will be a book signing of this book um, after uh, the event finishes on the stage, and there's also a reception that anyone is welcome to come to uh, around the corner as you turn left from the lecture room. So in the meantime, please give Judy Wiseman a very enthusiastic LSE welcome.
Well, thank you very much for that introduction and thank you all um, for being here. Um, it's always a great honour to speak in the old theatre because so many eminent people have spoken here before. And in fact, when I asked Tony to chair this session, he mentioned that he'd heard Bertrand Russell speak here when he was a young man. I actually recall seeing Talcott Parsons, who was the That's most... That's when I was a young man, not Bertrand Russell. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember seeing Talcott Parsons in the 1970s, who was the most famous sociologist of his time. And as he was speaking, two streakers literally ran across, a man and a woman completely naked ran across the stage behind him. And he was quite an old man at that time, and everyone sort of burst into laughter, and he had kind of no idea what was going on. So I'm just hoping nothing like that is going to happen this evening. The topic of my talk today is the relationship between technology and time, and it's a very long-standing interest of mine. I began my academic life as an economic sociologist, and so I was very much schooled on Marx and Fordism and the role of the assembly line in setting the pace of labour, the pace of work. And since reading E.P. Thompson's famous essay on time, work discipline and industrial capitalism, I've been fascinated by the significance of clocks. Actually, every year I take my students to the British Museum, to the horology department, and they're always struck by how recent, in the, whole, in the whole sort of span of human history, that accurate timekeeping is. And so I'm really intrigued by the fact that everywhere nowadays we hear that life is speeding up, that the pace of everyday life is accelerating. We're also constantly told that the rate of technological innovation is accelerating and that these two things are causally linked. From high-speed trading to speed dating, the world seems to be spinning ever faster. No wonder everyone complains about how busy they are. I think these sentiments are so taken for granted, so often said that they're rarely questioned or examined. If we believe the cyber gurus of Silicon Valley, this speed will make our lives better by making us more efficient, allowing us to do many more things faster and simultaneously. Digital devices are sold to us as time-saving tools that promote an exciting, action-packed lifestyle. And whether it's Siri or Cortana, she lets you use your voice to make meetings, send messages, place phone calls while exercising or driving. Every new gadget is said to represent a new chapter in the relationship between people and technology. Take, for example, the iWatch. This ad tells us that although we all share the same hours, minutes and seconds, what happens during that time is different for everyone. So the iWatch will let you see time in the ways that are most meaningful for you. It's all about us as individuals making the most of time. And as if that isn't enough, the apps for time management just seem endless. Self-logging bracelets that track everything from heart rates and sleep patterns to mood fluctuations enable us to monitor our activities and thus free up time. Perhaps some of you are even members of the quantified self-movement. I can't even go to my local swimming pool without a flashing sign that now says to me, wear a bracelet so you can really see how efficiently you're swimming, how efficient your strokes are. 
And I gather that some Californian IT geeks have even resorted to liquid food to save time. So it's all marketed for a busy life on the move. Now, acceleration isn't just the buzzword of um, a lifestyle trend. It isn't just a lifestyle trend. Actually, it's the buzzword of contemporary social theory. The idea that digitalization has accelerated time and spawned a new temporality is variously described as timeless time, instantaneous time, and network time. Perhaps the best known example is Manuel Castell's The Rise of the Network Society, in which he argues that the revolution in information and communication technologies has given rise to a new information age, a network society. And for him, this represents a whole new epoch in the human experience, in which time disappears that we are increasingly moving away, he says, from linear clock time, and that instead the sheer velocity and intensity of the global flows and networks dissolve time, resulting in simultaneity and instant communications, what he calls timeless time. And if you read John Uri as well, I think he argues in a, in a very, very similar vein that the speed of information technologies is annihilating time. Now, these theories, of course, differ in very, very uh, important ways, ways that I don't have time to go into here, but I discuss at length in the book. But why I list them here is because I think they share the idea that speed is the defining characteristic of contemporary social life. They're intoxicated by speed, fluidity, and movement. There's even been a turn to mobility studies in sociology. No standing still anymore. We're all supposedly on the move. And the driving force is digital technologies. But hang on a moment. If modern machines are supposed to free up time, how come so many of us feel rushed and harried? Instead of the post-industrial leisure society that technological advances were supposed to deliver, we seem instead to be time-pressured, like characters in Alice in Wonderland running ever faster to stay still. It's as if digital technology is pushing us into the fast lane, that we've become hostages to the machine. What I want to do this evening is to examine some of these paradoxes of time in our digital age. Is the pace of life really faster, and what's the role of technology? Why do we vacillate between regarding digital devices as the cause of time pressure and turning to them as the solution? And most importantly, how did acceleration come to signify the zeitgeist, the quintessential experience of modernity? And what are the political implications of this? Now, the tenor of theorists like Castells and Uri is that instantaneous time is socially destructive, as is much popular writing on the subject. Hardly a month goes by without books such as this coming out. I buy all these books and I can't even keep up with them. And all of them are kind of bemoaning our current state of busyness and distraction, advising us how to deal with digital addiction. In all these books, the hyperconnectivity of digital devices is blamed. According to Sherry Turkle of MIT, for example, social media use is hollowing out our personal relationships and family time, resulting in more noise but less meaningful communication. 
According to Tim Wu, a leading commentator on net neutrality, attention is the new scarce resource for business, as we're constantly distracted by the demands of the internet and the phone. The standard solution is a digital detox. Go off the grid, lock up the machines, and turn to a more authentic, natural state. Even an acute critic like Morozov talks about having to lock up his smartphone in order to be able to think and write. Now, as of this summer, if he went to New Forest National Park, he could put it in the tech creche, where you and your family can surrender your digital devices and car keys and skip off for a tech-free family day in New Forest. Enjoy activities from days of old, like chatting, making eye contact, <laughs> and not Googling things you wonder about. Say, we'll Google later. Just look at the damn birds. Now, of course, it isn't just a matter of parking your devices. In my book, I argue that the contemporary imperative of speed is as much a cultural artefact as it is a technological one. Technologies aren't simply neutral, value-free tools that have good or bad effects on us. Their design and the material infrastructure we inhabit reflects as much as shapes our society. Indeed, I think of technologies as crystallisations of society, as frozen social relations. And in their design, diffusion and reinvention, we can observe the contests and interests that form the underlying fabric of social life. We constantly evolve together with technologies. And so the kinds of machines we have matters a great deal for how we can live. And actually, I'm going to end this talk by questioning the notion that the fastest technologies are necessarily the best. Okay, before I go on, I just want to remind you that we're not unique in considering our own era as one of unprecedented acceleration. Our ambivalence towards rapid technical change, our shifts toward, between acceleration, exhilaration and alarm, celebration and fear, has striking parallels with responses to the massive inventions of the 19th century. It was common then to express anxiety about the disorienting effect of speed on our consciousness, emotions, and even politics. Like the internet is now, the telegraph was then seen as collapsing time and space. I have a great quote from Lord Salisbury, the Prime Minister, uh, in 1889 in my book, where he's commenting on how the telegraph has assembled all mankind upon one great plain, where they can see everything that is said, heard and done at the very moment those events take place. I thought it was a great statement on globalisation, actually. Sociologists here will immediately think of George Zimmel's description in 1900 of the speed of the modern metropolis and its disorienting effect. And in my book, I argue that Zimmel was actually the very first theorist of the acceleration society, because, in fact, I think his analysis of modern-time consciousness as one involving immediacy, simultaneity, and presentism resonates very much today. Now, some commentators claim that the technical changes of the previous era were more revolutionary than our own. 
For example, I find the economist Harju Chang's argument in 23 Things They Don't Tell You About Capitalism that the washing machine changed the world more than the internet particularly appealing, given my previous books. But I don't want to align myself with Martin Wolf of the FT, who argues following Robert Gordon that the inventions of the period 1870 to 1900, such as electricity and the internal combustion engine, were more important than the web and mobile phones. In my view, this is a rather sterile debate. Technological developments have always reshaped the relationship between space and time, and information and communication technologies are doing this in dramatic ways. Things are undeniably different. The amount of time we spend communicating via devices, for example, is unprecedented, as is the proportion of our waking hours that we now spend facing screens. Ofcom did a report earlier this year where they found that British adults now spend more time watching TV, using their mobile and on the computer than they do sleeping. And most of us immediately go to Google when we want to know something and we find it out incredibly quickly. So are we right to blame the digital revolution for accelerating the pace of life? Is the pace of life really faster? Well, yes and no. It's rather complicated, actually. It's certainly true that people feel rushed and pressed for time. Numerous surveys indicate a widespread perception of everyday life as harried and a sense that leisure time is scarcer and more hectic. However, what's not so clear is that the amount of leisure time people have has actually decreased. Time use studies where people keep very kind of detailed diaries about what they actually do show that overall the amount of leisure we have has not decreased. Of course, it varies a great deal between different kinds of people, different groups of people, but overall, time use researchers argue that leisure time hasn't declined significantly over the last 50 years. Now, I find this gap between objective time and how we subjectively experience it very interesting, and it seems to me to point directly to the importance of the quality or character of time and not just the amount of time. And for me, it points very directly to the role of technology and how technology is reshaping time. I've been researching technological change now for 30 years, and one of the things I've learned is that technology never simply speeds things up. This is because technology is not something separate from us. It's not apart from us. Actually, technology is part of what makes possible what we do and even how we think about time. In science and technology studies, we talk about this as the mutual shaping or co-constitution of people and things, people and objects. Every technological acceleration comes hand in hand with new activities and new experiences, creating new kinds of social relationships and new ways of working and living. But technologies don't have a life of their own. They only come to life and have meaning as we integrate them into our everyday lives. And often as not, their effects are unpredictable and contradictory. We often use them in ways that weren't anticipated by their designers. And I was really struck talking to William uh, Gibson earlier this week 
that he said that if he'd written Neuromancer in the 60s and he'd had everyone glued to their cell phones, no one would have published it. Nobody could have imagined it. Um, And so it seems to me that the very same devices that can make us feel harried also enable us to take more control of time. Now, one implication of this is that the standard narrative about acceleration dominating all aspects of contemporary life is far too one-sided. This vision of a single temporal regime of incessant speed attributes far too much power to technology itself. In reality, our everyday lives are characterised by a multiplicity of temporal textures and rhythms, which vary in intensity depending what we're doing, where we're doing it, with whom we're doing things. For example, quality time with children requires a very special kind of time. And according to all statistics, the amount of time both mothers and fathers are now spending with children has actually been increasing and not decreasing. And interestingly, this increase is in active childcare, talking and playing, suggesting that parenting is becoming more intensive. In other words, speed is only one side of a dialectical interplay between technology and time. And it may well be the case that while some things are accelerating and speeding up, other things may well be slowing down. Let me elaborate using the example of mobile phones. I began research on mobile phones when they were relatively, uh, when, well, when they were new, which wasn't that long ago, amazingly not that long ago, and they were primarily marketed at that time as business tools. And I can remember that every journalist I spoke to at that time, I was in Australia then, told me how much they hated it when people abused the phone by phoning up and saying, I'm on the train, I'm on the bus. I mean, my survey found, and all the subsequent research found, that most of the actual use of mobiles is people contacting family and friends. And as Tony said, the take-up of smartphones has been absolutely incredible. Already two in three adults in Britain own a smartphone. And this has followed a very similar pattern. By far the most common activities are texting, taking photos, and accessing uh, news and information services. Interestingly, in the, U- in the UK, for some reason, um, they're particularly used as a watch and alarm clock compared to Europe and America. Who knows? So a technology that was designed primarily for business has become an essential tool for synchronising activities in a desynchronised society. Now, what I mean by this is that mobiles have become ubiquitous as an organisational tool because of the way we live and work. The increase in flexible working hours and the rise of dual earner families has made coordinating with other people, particularly family members, more and more difficult. And this change in working patterns is actually itself a source of busyness, a cause of busyness. And so my point here is that the issue is not so much a shortage of time as a problem of timing or scheduling. And the mobile is a great device in that context. In my book, I also argue against the notion that the time people spend texting and on social media is leading to a deterioration in the quality of communication, that somehow mediated communication is always inferior to -to face-to-face talk. 
This is the usual image you kind of get. And actually, research shows that even the social networking sites of the young are mainly frequented by those who know each other. And in this way, mobiles can enrich social relationships and be an important tool of intimacy. And I've argued this in some of my uh, written work on mobile phones. But what about email, you're thinking? Surely she's not going to argue that email can save time and improve our lives. Surely not. Well, again, yes and no. There's a wonderful Stanford study on information overload where the authors found that email has become symbolic of work stress. That is that the way people express their frustration with the intensification of work and long hours is to complain about having too much email that it's much easier to focus on email than on countless meetings and having too much work. Now, importantly, why it's so common for workers to blame their stress on email is to do with its distinctive time-shifting properties. That is that email is asynchronous and decouples responses from messages so that when you're away from your inbox, messages build up. The experience of meetings and conferences is rather different because you need co-presence to do those things. And so we talk about those things as not leaving a material memory in the way that email does, in the way that the inbox does. Now, smartphones, of course, do extend these expectations of perpetual availability. But the fact that we feel we need to respond to email quickly is not due to the speed of data transmission, but because of collective norms that have built up about appropriate response time. And that's why I think the policies of Volkswagen and Daimler about banning emails at weekends and even automatically deleting emails during holidays are so important. Apparently, the Daimler um, car you know, motor company in Germany, apparently they sent out an email saying, the person you're sending this to is on holiday. Your email will be deleted automatically. If it's important, send it again when the person gets back. I thought this was fabulous. And I think it's much better when, than if you compare this with Eric Schmidt's recent book, How Google Works, where in a section called Overworked in a Good Way, I'm not kidding, Overworked in a Good Way, they say that work-life balance policies are insulting to smart employees. They have worked with young mums who go completely dark for a few hours in the evening and then around 9pm the emails and charts start coming in and we know we have their attention. So that's the tenor of how Google works. Okay, so, so far I've argued that we're not passive victims of the accelerating logic of technologies. Our desire for speed is not simply the result of technology, as we can and do make choices about how we interact with machines. So does it matter then what sort of machinery we have? Are digital technologies at all complicit in our sense of time pressure? Well, I think it matters a great deal, and in my final remarks, I want to consider how our cultural expectations of speed are constantly fed by innovations. I said at the outset that technologies reflect and express our times as much as shape them. We build our present and imagine our future with and through tools. 
And these visions are symbiotically reflected in them. And that's why I think we need to be much more discriminating and demanding about the kind of technologies we want and the values and purposes they might serve. Otherwise, we're left responding, whether positively or negatively, to technologies that are already there, merely as consumers. Let me explain. One area in which we've totally bought this story about acceleration is in relation to technological innovation. The sheer speed of innovation is equated with inventiveness, productivity, and efficiency. It's the ultimate goal of progress. We have this deeply held belief that the faster we do things, the more we'll save time. And I think we're so immersed in this culture of busyness and hyper-productivity that it's hard to raise questions about whether speed itself should be the ultimate rationale for innovation. Well, is it? Is the very best technological design always about maximising efficiency in the sense of being economical with time? This instrumental philosophy is certainly at the heart of engineering, in which the latest, fastest and most automated systems appear as objectively the best. Take something you rarely think about, searching the web. The speed of Google search engines so enthralls us that we seldom reflect on the fact that it favours some content over others. When I give my talks on gender and technology, I often tell the story of how Google had to change their search engine so that when you typed in, she invented, the autocomplete no longer comes up with the query, do you mean he invented? <laughs> now, this was not deliberate gender bias, but algorithms reflecting the values and culture of the world we inhabit. Algorithms are always influenced by those who design and write them, yet most people tend to regard them as neutral brokers of relevant knowledge. Now, when I asked someone at Google why the autocomplete function was so important, because it drives me bananas and probably does you too, surely it would be better, I said, to have more accurate knowledge, even if it meant slower search engines. He told me all about the importance of latency, which gives me a lot of street cred amongst people who do high finance, speed trading, latency. Apparently, even half a second's delay on a search engine which would occur if you increase the results on a page from 10 to 30, causes a 20% drop in traffic. So it's very important. The speed is very important. We might think that having more diverse search engines running different algorithms is more efficient in the sense of acknowledging the difference between data, information, and knowledge. But it would be much slower. Take another example, the constant upgrading of computer software and hardware. I'm sure you've all had the experience of going to the Apple shop, as I have, to get your iPad repaired, and you're faced with a young man who says to you, two years old, madam? We can't repair anything that's two years old. You've got to be kidding me. A lot of so-called innovation is trivial and really a way of locking us into existing products and enforced obsolescence. Driving, product, driving profit, the flip side of accelerated novelty production, the continual simulation of the new, is a mounting pile of trash. In my book, I pose the question of whether rapid technological change is always best for us. 
whether, for example, a computer that lasted years could easily be updated, repaired and upgraded, was easy to learn and use, would not be better. And actually, there's some very interesting politics going on now around such issues. A couple of years ago, a controversy erupted around the design of the retina display on Apple's new MacBook Pro computer. It was, Wired magazine reported, the least repairable laptop we've ever taken apart. Unlike the previous model, the display is fused to the glass, the RAM is soldered to the logic board, and the battery is glued to the case, so that customers can't upgrade the memory, have to buy expensive replacement parts, and there's no way of recycling the aluminium. While the debate raged about whether repairability was an outmoded virtue of electronics, Apple quietly announced its intention to withdraw several of its products from the US government's green rating scheme, arguing that their design no longer complied with the directive to make things easy to disassemble using common tools. Now, this bad news story has got a good ending in that Apple were forced to rescind its decision following a campaign by Apple fans, local governments and universities. Steve Jackson, who told me this story at a workshop actually sponsored by Intel and by uh, Genevieve, a fantastic workshop actually, he's a fan of Walter Benjamin and he writes about the quiet repair and maintenance work needed to keep the world going. In my analytic vocabulary, he's reminding us of the crucial role of digital labour, both paid and unpaid, that's rarely discussed. Now, this could be a topic of a whole other lecture, and I am somewhere else going to give a whole other lecture on this, but just very quickly, think about the time it takes to maintain our digital infrastructure at home. The work of continually upgrading our machines and getting used to new software the time this takes rather than saves is never discussed by the tech industry. And I think this says something about the temporal story of technology, that we focus on early moments of inception, on heroic inventors, and not on the breakdowns, fixers, and maintainers. In STS, we focus a lot on what we call infrastructure studies, that aim to heighten awareness not only of wires, tubes and cables, the materiality of the so-called virtual, but also of the invisible and time-consuming labour that underpins our electronic world. Now let me be absolutely clear. I'm not nostalgic for a more natural, less digitised past. This is not a lament for lost times. Neither do I see the emerging slow time movements, deceleration movements such as slow food or mindfulness as the solution. Rather, I share Donna Haraway's enthusiasm for the emancipatory potential of technoscience to create new meanings and new worlds, while at the same time remaining highly critical. And this involves redefining genuine inventiveness as not just about speed and novelty, but about challenging the assumptions that permeate our scientific discourse. To put it simply, it means thinking about social problems first and then thinking of technical solutions rather than the other way around. For example, crunching big data and then looking for applications for it, as if crunching big data isn't a political act in itself. 
But we can't do this while the people who design our technology and decide what's made are so unrepresentative of society. The most powerful companies in the world today, Microsoft, Apple, Google, Intel, are basically engineering companies. And whether in the US or Japan, they employ very few women, minorities, and people over 40. In the UK, I find it staggering that only 7% of engineering professionals are female. And Jesse Jackson has recently been campaigning in the US about how few African Americans are being hired by these high-tech companies. And as I've argued for years, I really think this influences the kinds of technology we get. Before I finish, just two very quick examples of just how limited I think the visions of Silicon Valley are. Take the current hype about the Internet of Things, which is all the buzz everywhere. There's a big conference in London at the moment, the World Internet of Things conference going on. When you speak to people in these companies, they tell you how wonderful it is to be able to control your home lighting, heating and music from your phone. I'm sure you'll have all read about smartphones that keep track of what's inside your refrigerator. So that if you buy some chicken, for instance, the refrigerator will keep tabs on it and tell you when it's about to expire and even suggest how to combine it with other ingredients. Me, I wonder who's going to actually do the cooking and washing up after the fridge has automatically ordered the food. Or take the sociable robots currently being designed by Japanese engineers where the most advanced robotics um, are going on now, the, the most advanced developments. Here is Humanoid Robotics Project for Cyborg, whose dimensions are based on average values for young Japanese females. To my mind, these futuristic visions are incredibly conservative and don't even begin to think imaginatively about alternative social relationships and ways of living. The future on offer is one in which everything changes so long as everything stays exactly the same. So to conclude, if we feel pressed for time today, it's not because of technology but because of the priorities and parameters we ourselves set. Digital time is no different. Ultimately, it needs to be understood of a pro as the product of the way in which humans use, interact with, and build technology. If we want to take more control of time, we must contest the imperative of speed and democratize engineering. Only then can we harness our inventiveness to fashion an alternative politics of time. I really don't think we can leave it to Google to make the world a better place. Thank you. There's nothing like being the person left to defend Silicon Valley at the LSE, and not usually my role. Uh, I want to thank Judy for the extraordinary invitation to be here. It's always a privilege to be in London. It's always a privilege to be at the LSE, and it's particularly a privilege to be the respondent for what has been my favorite read so far this year. You will buy Press for Time when you leave this room. She will sign it. You will love it. It is amazing. 
really extraordinary, fabulous thing. Um, I realized that as I was thinking about how I wanted to respond on it, I wanted to build on some of the themes that run through the book and some of the themes that run through Judy's talk just now. I realized, however, that requires just a little bit of an introduction for me because apparently the only role you can have in Silicon Valley at the moment is a male engineer cyber guru, and I am none of those things. So my name is Genevieve Bell. I am the director at this point of a brand new organization at Intel, so my role has changed slightly in the last, oh, six weeks. I am by background a cultural anthropologist, so I did my PhD at Stanford, I studied Native Americans, I ended up at Intel because I met a man in a bar in Palo Alto in 1998, which is how all good Australians get jobs. Uh, I am the child of an anthropologist, so I spent my childhood in central Australia in the 1970s and 1980s living with indigenous people in communities where they still remembered what their country was like before white fellas and fences and cattle. And it was an extraordinary childhood that taught me a great deal about ideas about time and also about time management. Uh, it also means that I'm the most unexpected thing you will find in a technology company. Uh, when I was interviewed at Intel, again, see man in bar, and they said, was there anything else they needed to know about me before they hired me? I said I was a radical feminist and an unreconstructed neo-Marxist. And they said, will we like that? And I said with all good and earnest intention that I thought, th thought, thought the first six months would be a little tricky. Um, as it turned out, the first 15 years were a little tricky. Uh, on my first day in my new job, my boss sat me down, congratulated me on taking the offer at Intel, and said that my job at the company would comprise of two things and two things only. Clarity is always nice, right? And I said, excellent, what are those things? My new boss said, you'll be responsible for women. <laughs> I reasonably said, which women? Again, see, radical feminist and a lot of time in the academy. And my new boss said, all women. <laughs> I clarified, do you mean all 3.2 billion? Yes, said my boss. And I said, excellent. What do you imagine I will do with 3.2 billion women? My boss said, it would be good if you could tell us what they want. Excellent. So in my notebook of the day, I wrote down women all and underlined it a number of times and tried to imagine what is the job research project you will do to explain women all to a semiconductor manufacturing company. And I imagined that the first part of that research, which Judy will appreciate, would be that you'd have to explain why women all wasn't actually a category. And then you would have to find some other research to do. At this point, however, in my research reverie, I realized that there was this awful problem because this new boss had said there were two things. And if the first thing is women all, it is terrifying to contemplate what your new boss might imagine the second thing you should be responsible for is. And I asked somewhat fearfully, I'm sure I hope she would say men, because then I'd just have everything. <laughs> but my new boss said, perhaps unsurprisingly even now, that Intel had what she described as an ROW problem. I had to ask what that was, feeling at this point a bit like an idiot. And she said they had a rest of world problem. <laughs> and I took a very deep breath and asked where world was <laughs> in this formulation and was informed that that was America. And I said, good, so to recap then, my job would be women and rest of world? My new boss said yes. And I said, so then my understanding of it is that my job is to explain everyone who isn't in the building to everyone who is in the building. And my new boss said, yes, that was excellent. And I went back to my desk and kind of quivered for quite some time, trying to imagine what is the task that I had embarked upon. I have in some ways been deeply fortunate to have carved out a career doing precisely that at Intel. 
There are people like me in many other tech companies now, but when I started at Intel, there were very few social scientists doing work inside large engineering enterprises, and fewer still that were willing to imagine that those social scientists might have something useful to tell them. In the time I have been at Intel, I've held a number of roles. All of those roles have, in some way or another, comprised bringing stories from outside the building into the building and spending time, as anthropologists do, with people all over the world, trying to get a sense of what makes them tick, what they care about, what they're passionate about, what frustrates them, and then using all of that to drive next-generation technology, innovation, and invention. And that's, as Judy would rightly say, that's a different talk. As part of my job, however, the second piece, when it's not about women and the rest of the world, is about thinking about the future. And, you know, it is increasingly my opinion that as technology companies in particular make products and talk about products, what they're actually doing is making stories and promises about what they hope the future would be. And I think that's deeply complicated. And I'm particularly thinking about this now in the context of Judy's work about time. In her book, which again you will purchase as you walk out the door because it is amazing, she documents the kind of literal billions of connected devices in the internet on which they run and the ways in which those co-create our ideas about time and about speed and about pressure. And that is extraordinary. But I'm also really struck by some of the language that runs through it about ideas about time and speed and efficiency and about how they are being applied to the next generation of technology that is being incubated in places like Intel and the stories that we are now starting to circulate beyond the stories about mobile devices. Judy flagged just a couple of them, and I want to kind of dwell on them here a little more deeply, particularly around the Internet of Things and around this whole kind of category of big data. The devices that Judy talks about in the Internet that I think we all reflect on is at this point producing a tremendous amount of data. I mean with this with a big D, a big A, a big T, and another big A. The kind of data that in Heathrow three days ago some other tech company told me dreamed big. So data dreams big. I'm like, I don't even know what that means. And if it's dreaming big, what is it dreaming of? I mean, you know, Philip K. Dick asked the question, do androids dream of electric sheep? A reasonable question. One has to wonder if big data dreams of big sheep, a lot of sheep, unstructured sheep. I mean, there's many kind of questions that one immediately goes to there. But you realize that part of the conversation about big data and the one that happens in Silicon Valley and beyond is about two things. One is about the accumulation of data. So suddenly we have more of it than we've ever had. We've gone from talking about petabytes of data to jettabytes of data to yodabytes of data. That would be with two Ts, not a D, just in case you were hoping for a Star Wars reference. There isn't one. So we have this accumulation of data. We also have a sense of an acceleration of data. If you listen to companies like Cisco, they talk about the Internet of Things producing literally billions of pieces of data in this rapid accumulation and a rapid acceleration of data. And the quest to organize that, to rationalize it, to extract value out of it, is this extraordinary conversation that is riven through with all the ideas that come out of Pressed for Time. We now talk about how do you extract value out of that data quickly? How do you do it efficiently? How do you deliver value back to all manner of organizations and institutions and human beings? For citizens and consumers, one of the first ways that big data will appear back to us is in the form of something Judy tipped her hand to earlier, or what you know, we would call in the business personal assistance. So Siri was the first one of those about two and a half years ago from Apple, followed by Google Now from Google, Cortana from Microsoft. Amazon has one called Firefly that at the moment is still just a set of tools, not yet a manifestation for consumers. Those personal assistants promise a number of things. One of them, they promise to extract value out of all this data. 
They promise to deliver us efficiency, and the language they use is extraordinary. Um, Google now says just the right information at just the right time, which is wonderful. Siri says we'll help you get things done. And Cortana fabulously actually says she is here to help make things easier. They've gone from being it. Siri always called it, though clearly has a female voice. Google now has no voice in that sense. But Cortana is clearly flagged as a female assistant. And there is something extraordinary there about what it means to imagine that all of the assistants, your personal assistants, have to be female voices. Uh, there's a long set of studies done on why it is that we respond better to women telling us what to do than we do to men. There's some really interesting things about why voices in GPS services are easier to have directions given to you from a woman than from a man, but that is also a different thought. <laughs> but there's something here about what it means to imagine an entire class of objects. So not objects in the traditional sense, right? They're not physical objects. They're not technological objects. They will, in fact, be algorithms. Those algorithms sit underneath personal assistance and start to do things like, say, how do we take your calendar, so one form of time data, and mesh it to your commute data, a different kind of time data, so that your phone will now prompt you, as it does my colleagues, and say, oi, it's time to leave the office now if you want to miss traffic. A very different notion about how things will get structured, but what lies underneath of it is an idea that these devices will, quote, unquote, help us make more of time. So whether it's about you know, Judy's idea about temporal density and how you might manage multitasking better, or whether it's about just a notion of more efficiency, there's something running through all of that that I find extraordinary. And I think algorithms as a space for critical reflection from an STS point of view, I think from an economic point of view, is well overdue. And part of what makes them interesting for me is very much the logic of what makes those algorithms tick. So think of an algorithm as simply, in some ways, in my mind, being a theory, right? It's how do you hold certain pieces of information together, what is the relationship between them, and how might you decide what those pieces of data stitch together up to? Most of us in this room will have encountered algorithms long before we knew them as such. If you were a user of Amazon, I will confess to being a regular user of Amazon. You select books, you are building up Amazon's database, eventually Amazon says to you, oh, you liked that, you should like this too. Um, Recently, however, I've confused Amazon, which is actually quite a trick in 2014. I purchased a bunch of books about Gollum because I was interested in thinking about Frankenstein. I then purchased a bunch of books about alchemy because I was interested in thinking about Frankenstein. And then Amazon said that possibly I needed to become an expert in Wicca. <laughs> they had a thread running through it, but not necessarily the right thread. Those algorithms of recommendation do a particular kind of work. What those recommendation algorithms do is they say, you and people who have similar purchasing or search habits to you looked for things in certain kinds of classes. So if you were a Netflix or an, you know, a content algorithm, you would say, okay, we're now going to offer you up choices to determine if it's the actor you liked, the director you liked, the plot line you liked, the location you liked, or the time period you liked. And we're just going to keep circling around that till we stabilize what you want. Most algorithms are doing something like that, right? Most of the ones we encounter in banking, dating, travel, content, are all algorithms of matching. They're all about recommendations and they're all about past activities. And they stabilize around things you have already done and other people like you have done. Now there are a number of consequences for that. One of them is that they are never prospective. So if you live in a world that is driven by algorithms, it's always about what you have done, not what you might do. It becomes very hard to imagine what a world of reinvention will look like if all the things that are being offered up to you by these algorithms are things that have already been done or have already happened. 
It's particularly interesting to contemplate what that will look like when the series of personal assistance algorithms that sit on your myriad of mobile devices aren't just offering you up commute patterns, but are also starting to shape what financial transaction services you use, what mapping services you use, what news services you use, what content services you use, the notion of what it means to have a future-looking point of view that isn't already and always shaped by what has happened is a novel and complicated thing to contemplate. It also means, to Judy's point, how we imagine matching things becomes critically important. And how we think about having a critical point of view about an algorithm is actually quite complicated. Most of us know how to critically interrogate a technological object. We know how to think about its shape, its form, its moments of use, its disruptions. It is much harder, I find, to critique an algorithm. It requires a different set of skills. It requires a different set of abilities to take things apart. And as you do, you find, perhaps not unsurprisingly, that a series of quite significant assumptions are being built into algorithms about what matches what. The good news there in some ways is that many of us will fall through the cracks because we don't look like things that have happened in the past and we will be invisible in new and better ways. That's sometimes my hopeful read on this. The much more frightening read is what forms of normativity will be introduced here that run the gamut from forms of social organisation and social relationships to ideas about affect and love to ideas about what are appropriate activities, what is appropriate content, what is appropriate reading, what is appropriate financial relationships and travel destinations. All of those things in the name of efficiency, because that's what those algorithms are doing, right? They're about making more efficient relationships between different pieces of data. What is fascinating when you look at most of those algorithms, because they are based on ideas about recommendation and similarity, there are some things they don't know how to do at all well. So if you were to sit in Silicon Valley or go to the Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas or the Mobile World Congress in Barcelona or any number of other big technology shows around the world, you would inevitably see someone showing the next generation of smartphone technology with one of these personal assistants. And the scenario would usually go something as follows. Oh, Genevieve, you're in London. You're jet-lagged. We'll get you coffee. Here are the three coffee places around you that serve flat whites. Here are the two that have Australians as baristas. Here is the one that has soy milk for cat. And you'd be like, excellent, I'm going there. And that would be the scenario, right? It would have matched my location data, my travel data. It will have matched my airplane arrival. It will have matched my hotel room. We'll take all of those things together and just directed me straight to coffee. That is a scenario about doing the things you have always done. Most of us in this room, I'm going to guess, are old enough to have travelled before we had devices to tell us where to go. And part of the joy of being in a new place was the moment when you took the wrong turn and ended up somewhere you would never have expected, with a meal you didn't quite anticipate, with people you didn't know. And usually those things worked out. If they didn't work out, they were always a good story afterwards. Imagine what it would be like to have an algorithm that offered that as an opportunity, not one that took everything you had already done and told you to do it again. What would it be to have an algorithm that landed you in London and said, yeah, 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 we know you want coffee, but if you go another 300 feet, there's a really interesting piece of public art that we think you're going to like, and it's only here for another week, so you should go have a look at it, and then you can have coffee. Not quite pattern matching, right? Something that starts to imagine what would it be like to architect an algorithm not about efficiency, but about surprise, or about delight, or about the prospect of wonder, all of which are things in some ways that our conversations about time and efficiency deliberately erase. It's about, in some ways, flattening out the highs and lows. So you don't get to have delight or wonder, 
you just get to have familiar terrain and all the things you expected. Right? Part of the story in some ways about managing time is about managing expectations. It also strikes me, and I was thinking this as I was reading Judy's book, that one of the other things we don't talk about terribly much that we are losing in this conversation about the acceleration of time is the importance of the complete flip side of wonder and surprise, which is, of course, boredom. In Judy's book, she references Dickens, which always makes me happy because Dickens, amongst his many other dubious distinctions, is the man who actually coined the term boredom in English. Its first appearance in the English language is in Bleak House in 1853. Up until then, you could only have ennui, which tells you something about English and possibly about the French, but that is a different theory. So he coins the term boredom. It's in a very particular context inside Bleak House. It is in the context of a rapidly industrialising London, a rapidly industrialising England, of an appearance of leisure time and of suddenly an abundance of choices. And with the abundance of choices, paradoxically comes the possibility of being bored. And the main protagonist in Bleak House finds herself to be desperately, desperately bored of all of her choices. There is something here fascinating to imagine what it means to have weeded boredom out in all of our pressure to engage in efficient activities. I'm sure there's a school of thought here that would say that, you know, in the kind of Weberian late capitalist world in which we inhabit, boredom is a very poor cousin to efficiency. If one is bored, one is not using one's time appropriately. But we know from both philosophy and indeed psychology and medicine that boredom actually performs this really interesting function in human beings. Heidegger, nearly 100 years ago, standing on a train platform, contemplated the fact that world was speeding up. He was deeply, deeply, deeply worried about the appearance of movies and all this stuff and life was really hectic and there was something he thought really good about standing on a train platform for four hours being basically bored out of his skull. And he went on to contemplate why that was. And his theory was that boredom was a thing that as human beings, and I imagine here he means, you know, post-enlightenment Western human beings, but that there was something about being bored that was terrifying for us. That the notion of unstructured, unsalvaged, unused time was a thing that we should avoid at all costs. And his argument was, philosophically speaking, that boredom was a time for the possibility of extraordinary creativity. And that, in fact, rather than running away from boredom, we should, in the parlance of today's Silicon Valley, lean into it. We should work out how to embrace boredom, create it, because the possibilities were extraordinary. Turns out he wasn't wrong from a biomedical point of view. Recent studies out of both Yale, Harvard and indeed Stanford suggest that boredom occupies a particular way of reconfiguring our brain. So we worry about not getting enough sleep because we know sleep is a moment when our brains reset themselves. It turns out our brains, when bored, do a different kind of work altogether. Now, it's actually quite hard to study. It's very hard to put someone in an MRI machine and say, please be bored now. Um, it turns out you have to put them in 20 times, and then eventually they just get very bored. Um, and when very bored in an MRI machine, you see that people's brains literally light up like Christmas trees. And there is this extraordinary moment in time where your brain does a very different piece of work. Now, some of us in this room, again, though not everyone, are old enough to remember, perhaps Judy and I, growing up in Australia and in the summer times when the days were long, well, like England, but the days were warm, so less like England, um, you would say to your mother, I'm bored, and she'd say, well, go outside and play and come back when it's dark. And if you're that bored, my mother would say, you could mow the lawn. And you, you were never that bored. <laughs> but we went forth and created things to do. We found other things to do with our time. It strikes me in thinking about boredom this way that it was the inevitable twin of the Industrial Revolution, right? As soon as you have the 
possibility of leisure time, you have the possibility of choices, and you have the possibility of boredom. My constant question as I think about that is, what does boredom look like in a digital world? It's not digital detoxing, that's not the same thing. It's not roaming the internet, it's not that either. Is it turning everything off? Is it putting yourself in an MRI machine, metaphorically, 20 times in a row? I don't know. But there's something for me of thinking about what will be the moral equivalent of boredom in a digital world is a way of coming back at this question about time. We were pressed for time and, you know, we created a series of ways of managing that and I am struck by thinking about Judy's work that one of the things that we are also doing here is attempting to erase a series of other activities that for me turn out to be really important. And thinking about what it means to put those things back into the conversation is unsurprisingly a little difficult in Silicon Valley. I will come back to where I started here. As someone who spends her time in an engineering company, it is sometimes hard to get engineers to understand that inefficiency is actually desirable. They usually go, no, no, efficiency, good. And I'm like, television, most popular technology of the 20th century, hardly one that made us more efficient. They're like, yes, but no one watches television anymore because they're all on the internet. I'm like, okay, and yet no. <laughs> so there's something here about what it means to provide a critique of efficiency and of time and of speed that isn't just about the notion of switching off, but a notion of reconfiguring relationships and of asking something different of the technology. So that asking something different of algorithms means thinking about not just what it means to have an efficient algorithm with all of its inherent contradictions, but what it might mean to have algorithms that deliver things that we would recognize as being ever so slightly more human. And with that, I will stop. Well, no jokes about being pressed for time. We've got half an hour for discussion, and so I just immediately open up the floor to whoever wants to ask a question. would be good if you could ask short questions rather than making statements, if that's feasible. Or I could get an algorithm to do it for most of us. Well, I'll take you right up the top there. Can you speak up? So we're far away, away there. Um, I had a question about the uh, first talk. Um, it was really interesting to hear about how uh, time is not uh, shrinking down, but uh, in terms of leisure time, we think that we have less. But I was wondering if um, it was measured in it, the time of it that we're interrupted in our leisure time, because I think uh, today it's much easier to interrupt us and to try to measure the leisure time without considering this interruption is not going to give us the whole picture. Uh, it's a really interesting question, actually, and I have written sort of quite a lot about interruptions and been critical of the concept. Um, traditionally, in time diary work, there's a lot of work about whether leisure accompanied by children is interrupted leisure time or pure leisure time or contaminated leisure time uh, and how one can kind of think about that. And it, it seems to me that the, the, the understanding is that somehow interruptions are bad things. That, you know, that's what I was trying to show with those books, that the kind of assumption is that these interruptions are unwanted and that there's some better, purer leisure time available. And, and actually, 
when you observe people and do studies and see how people are using the technologies, it seems to me, and I'm a very late adopter, I have to say, I'm one of those people, as Tony well knows, I was very late getting a mobile phone, all these technologies, that people use these technologies to coordinate activities, to do things they want to do, and feel like they're, they're enriching their time. And I've, um, the particular thing I've written about interruptions is a study of knowledge workers at work. And I did a very uh, close study looking at, for a few days, of how people were using various different technologies. So between the internet and um, landlines and mobile, a whole lot of, of set of things. And I asked people whether they thought of these technologies as interrupting their work. And what I conclude in that paper is, in fact, that these technologies have changed the nature of work, that it isn't, that one shouldn't assume you know, that the work is the same as it was before, but now it's interrupted. Actually, they talked about the fact that they organise their work through emails, through phone calls, and that in a lot of these companies, over a period of time, different customs and habits grow up in terms of how people are using the different technologies. So I think that we get stuck in, in a sense um, in thinking about these technologies in the early phase. So I think, for example, with emails, when we first had emails, everyone answered them immediately. It was so exciting that they, it was so instant that we did that. And I think over time what comes out in these studies is that a hierarchy of different technologies take place so that people build up customs about whether they're going to actually phone people or use emails or use landlines. And, and I think we're in a very early phase of these technologies, actually. It seems to me that even in this short phase where I've been aware of these technologies, our practices in terms of mobile phones has completely shifted. I mean, I can remember when I first went to Paris to speak to some people in France Telecom and someone gave me Christian's mobile and I said, well, surely I can't use that. That's a private number. Like, there was no way I was going to ring him on this number. And they, oh, no, no, we're all giving out our phone numbers now. And I think we're in very early phases, actually, of how we're using these technologies. And I think these practices in, in 5, 10, 15 years will, will be very different. So, we're, so I think that's something to think about in terms of these things. And I, and I think when we write the history of these technologies, I mean, it's a bit like what Gibson was saying in Neuromancer. I don't think in another 20 years people will be fixated as they are now on people walking around glued, glued to their machines because the machines will be naturalised, like washing machines, like lots of other technologies that we have and that, that we completely take for granted, that are just part of our infrastructure, part of our lives, like electricity as we discussed well, once. Or we will have been replaced by the machines. Um, there's a question over the back there. Uh, hello. Hi. Um, so um, I wanted to build on the theory of boredom. So this was something that was mooted by uh, Blaise Pascal as well, that um, you know, one thing that separates humans from any other organisms is basically that they are the only ones who get bored and that all the systems that we have developed is basically about not getting bored. So it's a question to both of you is that... Um, what is happening is, what has technology done as, so basically what has happened is the scope of activities that we have has not changed much over the past whatever, you know, 300, 400 years. However, technology has sh shrunk the time in which we do those activities, thereby leaving a gap in which we kind of feel, you know, we feel bored and feel the desperate need to do something, which creates a sort of an artificial demand. The question is, do you feel that 
all the companies like Google or Facebook or you know any social media or Intel, whatever, they create a sort of a monopsony, and that this will lead to a reversal of roles. What I mean is, earlier, like you mentioned, that our parents would say, "Go outside and play," and then we could do anything. We were not limited by choice. But now it's a monopsony of sorts, which is in which we we can do anything, but under certain constraints. Do you think? Could you get to the question? Yes. So this, do you think this will lead to a reversal of uh, roles to the you know to how it was originally? Sorry, we just missed the last bit just of it. Give just us the question again. Yeah. Give us so, the question. do you think um, this monopsony of sorts will lead us to how it was probably in the 60s or something like that? In the 60s, that's sweet for them. <laughs> um, <laughs> listen, I think one of the things that's happening is we have always, at least in the West, had a really ambivalent relationship to boredom. You know, it was never socially sanctioned. It was always a problem, you know. So the kind of expressions of idle hands at the devil's work is an expression about what it means to not be engaged in productive labor. And one of the tensions about boredom was that you were allowed to be bored as a child, but you shouldn't be bored as a grown-up. And so what's sort of fascinating is that the medical data suggests that, you know, we actually we all need to be bored more often than we are. And we are going through, I think, you know, Judy's absolutely right, we're going through a period of fascination with this particular cohort of technologies. And they offer lots of different possibilities and prospects. But we also know from the long histories of technologies, at some point they will become less compelling. And we will move on to restructuring our time again. Do I think we ever, a la Heidegger, embrace boredom? No. I think, you know, as long as we have a notion of time and efficiency and money as a nexus, boredom is a dangerous luxury. Who's embracing boredom but would like to ask a question? Yes. Be good to keep it reasonably short. Yeah, it would be quick, uh, a quick one. Um, Judy, thank you. Um, I agree with you. We mustn't leave business to design human experience, even if they're offering um, serendipity algorithms or boredom ag algorithms. Um, and you asked a really important question, but I don't think you really helped too much, which was um, how do we be more demanding about the kinds of um, technology we have in front of us without accepting what's given? I mean, I've got many things to say about that. I mean, I, I do think that, as I've argued for many years, it's very important to have different engineers and more representative engineers. And I mean, one of the things actually Tony's been involved in um, in the Lords with this uh, skills discussion is the, the shortage. One of the things I've been arguing is that the shortage of women in engineering is chronic and that that does have a great effect on technologies. But actually, I've been going to some talks recently about responsible engineering and responsible innovation. And in the European context, the European research councils um, that, that fund engineering are having quite a discussion at the moment about what responsible innovation is and how to write that into their grant proposals. And so it seems to me there is a bit of a shift now in trying to at least have a conversation about that. And I think that... A lot of the discussion about innovation is very taken up with apps and 
um, personal assistance and all of these things, and that there isn't enough innovation in lots of other very important areas, like alternative energy, which is something that um, you know Tony's been very involved with. And I think we kind of tend to focus on particular kinds of innovation, and actually there's lots of other innovations that if there was more state funding for them, that would be just as important to develop. And so I, it seems to me in Europe there is a bit of a discussion going on about these things. It's difficult. Please, down the front here. Oh, no, since we've all been men so far, it'd be good. We have to get the microphone to you, though. Everyone should hold the microphone fairly close to their mouth. That's how they work best. Ms. Bell, you said something fascinating about what is normative within an algorithm, kind of the undercurrent that flows through algorithms. I'm a designer of algorithms. I'm a designer of user experiences. I'm curious to know, what do you think is our responsibility to be transparent about those undercurrents, about what drives the algorithms? Oh, such a good question. Um, listen, the first time I think that the general public understood that there were assumptions being built into algorithms that were cultural was actually when people like Jeff Hancock at Cornell started unpacking the dating algorithms. So whether we like to admit it or not, most of the world seems to be on a dating website. They are some of the most popular websites outside of, you know, the Amazons and Netflix of the world. We're talking about hundreds of millions of subscribers, if that's the word you'd want to use, the world over. Um, and one of the most famous of the algorithms, matching algorithms on one of the most sort of popular dating sites, mostly based in the United States, turned out that after it had done its psychodemographic profiling, it matched men with women who were more than three inches shorter than them, but never less than three inches or taller. Now, there is something extraordinary about the operating assumption that is being built in there about what, in this particular instance, heterosexual relationships need to look like and what makes men and presumably women feel comfortable, which is a three-inch height delta. Who knew? Um, one can only begin to imagine in other circumstances, what the assumptions are that are being built, hardwired into algorithms about what sorts of data sit with what other sorts of data, what things match things, what are the ideas about space, time, social relationships, affect. And I sometimes think knowing how to ask the questions is also difficult. I mean, and those are hardly new things, right? The first generation of uh, Wi-Fi technology, so 806.11a and b, was built to function in a house that was 3,000 square feet, coincidentally an American house. Um, the people who built that, it, they just built it for a house. It never occurred to them they built it for their own house, and those houses were not the globe. It's a rest-of-world problem. Um, I imagine that a similar set of assumptions are routinely being made about what kinds of things match other things and under what circumstances. I think one of the challenges is that for most designers... Being versed in coding languages is hard. I think for most social scientists, that's almost further than we have gone. So you ask what we should be doing. It's not just about fixing the engineers. It's about also fixing the social scientists. And if we were worth our salt, we would be training our students to go work in these companies, not just stay in universities. I mean, there's a piece about you know what it would mean to have... Sorry, maybe that's a controversial point. But what it would mean to actually put other people into the mix, not just fixing engineering, but bringing the rest of our voices in too. But I think one of the challenges becomes how do you train people to even be reflexive about when those moments of assumptions are? For the engineers I work with, they just said house, and it, it was 2,300 to 3,300 square feet, so, you know, 200 to 300 square metres. And that was just house to them. It didn't occur to them that was something they should ask about. 
I mean, they didn't think it was an assumption. So I think there's a piece there about how do you even have structure the conversation such that you would have the moment of unpacking when the assumption happens. Um, yes. Sorry. If you forgive me, go and go question at the, at the top there first. Again, you need to put the mic fairly close to your mouth so that... Hi, um, I just wanted to ask a bit more about um, algorithms and, how, and the Internet of Things and how much you see it's about um, time efficiency and how much you see it's about passivity and that we're becoming quite passive in terms of, you know, not looking in the fridge, not um, having to think about things. Judy? I'm just wondering what to say about that. I mean, I don't think about it in terms of passivity. It seems to me that, that as I said in my talk, that technologies don't have a life of their own, actually, that they only have a life as we give them meaning, as we use them, as we interpret them. I think it's very interesting, if you look at the history of technologies like mobile phones, that they were designed for something entirely different and that there's a lot of technologies historically that designers thought of one thing for them and people suddenly started texting. People used them in very active ways. So I don't have a sense. I mean, I don't know if I'm quite getting at what you would... A moment, you know, algorithms, it's picking the books for you on Amazon and, you know, it's picking the films you might like so you're not going out and looking for it yourself. Well, at one level that's true, but at one level we have much more choice. I mean, the other thing that's said about all these technologies is that it, it widens the options, that we've got much more of a sense of lots of things that are accessible that weren't before. And I think we just need to be much more critical about what we're being offered. And I mean, if I can just say so, and it's kind of going back to the question earlier, in science and technology studies we talk quite a lot about the fact that it's often implied that somehow um, citizenry are ignorant about science and technology and that it's their responsibility to know more about things in order to actively participate. But I went to a fantastic talk uh, recently by one of the most famous nanotechnologists in Britain, and he was talking about the fact how they had made these nanotechnologies go round the north of England in, in just normal halls talking to people about nanotechnology and what they were doing. And he said it was incredibly educative for him and that there should be much more responsibility, actually, on scientists and engineers and designers to take their knowledge out to citizens to inform people so people can more actively engage about how the future's being made. Um, i take that. Sorry, just behind in the blue pullover. Thank you. Uh, the title of the book says The Acceleration of Life in Digital Capitalism. I was wondering how you would imagine the role of technologies for time management in the digital socialism or digital communism and what is the association between capitalism and the time management? Well, what, what, what it was an allusion to is, is that I am worried about the fact that these huge capitalist companies have got so, so much power now and do... Don't pay their taxes not right. It's not right. Absolutely, Sorry. absolutely. But, um, you know, it is very hard to kind of engage with these companies given their extraordinary power. And the state has withdrawn from quite a lot of innovation. I mean, it's kind of interesting that there's a lot of interest now in the kind of probe on the comet. There are these big 
projects that are, that are big state projects, but there aren't many of those projects, and that on the whole we're left with endless hype about what the world's going to look like. I mean, I, I feel like, um, just to sort of give you an example, I teach a lot of courses on science and technology studies. When I started teaching them 20 years ago, I used to cut out from the newspaper stories about technology because I still read paper newspapers. And I mean, now I just have to take in the whole newspaper. I mean, there is, I mean, it is just like all of the news. Uh, when a new iWatch comes out, it's on the BBC News as if it is news. It seems to me that we're kind of in this techno culture in a way we never were before. And these companies somehow are taking up an extraordinary amount of space in terms of imagining the future, creating our desires. And so I would like the state to be more actively involved in these discussions. Down the front. Not many people succumbing to functional boredom, fortunately. One thing I'm very interested in is our increasing inability to concentrate um, I notice that a lot in my work, and I'm sure it's the case in many other environments, that we are no longer spending increasing amount of time just doing our work. We're constantly flicking from the work to buy something on Amazon or to watch the BBC. And compared to, say, 20 years ago when we would really sit much more focused for long periods of time. I think that is something I'd like to hear what you think about. Well, I'm not sure that's true, actually. Um, and the study I did of these knowledge workers, which was a very... I mean, it's very hard to do these things over time, yeah? But certainly I was quite interested in the fact that what I found was very similar to studies of managers 20 years ago that if you read um, Mintzberg and those classic studies of managers, they were supposed to be strategically thinking. They were supposed to be spending a lot of time planning and considering things. But actually, in those interviews of 20 years ago, they say that they spend most of their time chatting at meetings, being interrupted. And so I'm not entirely convinced that things are... I mean, I, you know, I went into the study on interruptions. I mean, because I sit and think, you know, I'm someone, I spend the day sitting and reading and thinking, and so I think, gosh, this is terrible. They're being interrupted, and there are all these technologies and things. And, and the, certainly the study I did, that was the work that people did. They didn't sort of think of interruptions in the way I thought of interruptions because they had a different sense of what their work was. So I'm just not sure about that story. Where should we go to? Right at the back. Really good. Hi, I just wanted to ask you, uh, to what extent do you think that new technologies have the power to redefine our habits and uh, the political consequences that this might have? Thank you. Well, I was trying to say that, we, that we're not passive in terms of that. 
that how I think about technologies is in terms of mutual shaping or mutual configuration. It seems to me that we remake our time and space and our habits with the technologies, that we're not victims of the technology. So I wouldn't put it in that way, that the technologies are redefining us. I'd say that the way we're engaging with technologies is redefining us. Yeah, I think you could even push it one step further and say there are certain technologies that seem delightful inside this horrible beast of capitalism that were very unsuccessful when they got released into the human realm. Technologies that engineers thought were just the best things since sliced bread and humans went, yeah, not so much. And I think, you know, one of the things that's important there to remember is that there are certain technologies that have been taken up and engaged in that kind of mutual co-creation because they did things that we either wanted done, we liked having done, that replaced things we were doing in a different way. But the things that weren't successful in that regard just didn't didn't thrive. And so there is sort of a piece there about, you know, not all technologies are successful even if they're built. I'm not sure. I think the internet is completely transforming the nature of democratic politics, actually, for what it's worth. Please, you in the middle there. Thank you. Uh, I just wonder, uh, is your theory relative only for developed countries, or you just in your work analyzed developing and poor countries? or only developed. Thank you. Yeah, my... No, no, Tony's got... What, what, do you, what would you like to say? No, in terms of my book, I mean, quite a lot of it is empirical work that I myself have done, and I haven't done empirical work in developing countries, so it is limited in that way. Yeah, but I mean, you know, there are more mobile phones in Africa than there are here, and this is quite incredible. This is the first time it's ever happened, that kind of saturation of advanced technology in relatively poor countries, and it's allowed Africans to skip a stage in the development of telephones. They've simply gone um, beyond the stage of having fixed telephone systems, and I feel that could happen to quite a lot of other aspects of life, including, for example, energy. That is, you might, you might be able to go straight to renewable uh, technologies if you can integrate them with uh, digital um, means of delivery. So... I think, you know, it's really different from the past. It doesn't take ages to percolate through. But I do think... Mind you, it's not my business to answer them. Yeah, but I do think... <laughs> I do think it's worth considering, and I mean, I, Judy's book does a lovely job of this, of remembering that time is in and of itself a cultural construct, right? The ways we think about time, what it is related to, what are its allied discourses, you know, hear about speed and acceleration and about efficiency, those aren't human universal truths, right? Time is understood differently inside different cultural contexts. It has different affinal relationships and it is, you know, managed in different ways. And, you know, it, it's had different consequences as a result of that. So, you know, I think you might find people have different both anxieties and management structures as a result of that. Well, um, I'll take a, a lady on the front here. I have to wait for the microphone. We'll probably only um, be able to have one more question after that. I won't mention time or anything, I promise. <laughs> Okay. Uh, for Dr. Bell, I've been following you actually for quite a while and um, really love your work. Um, and um, for me, technology, what has come up in the talks is it's kind of about agency, sort of, and maybe when we talk about boredom, it's about motivation as well. And um, what I feel like has maybe changed is how we perceive agency, what's the, what, the perception of agency. And so my question to you is, do you think that the need for agency or the need for the perception of agency has changed with technology? 
Wow, all right, so I'm going to answer that question quickly, although it is a deep question. Um, I think one of our principal sites of anxiety about new technologies is actually ones that threaten to have agency of their own. So our perennial anxiety about robots in particular and the fact that they will apparently rise up and kill us, and indeed, you know, the singularity and all other things, the anxiety that's in there is what will it mean to have technologies that have their own agency, that may make decisions on their own. And, you know, frankly, the consequence of certain kinds of algorithmic thinking, uh, self-learning algorithms, machine learning, is all about what it would mean to accord some level of self-determination to technology. I think one of the things we are ambivalent about as human beings is where the line about agency should sit. We know it's one of the things, at least in a Western context, is what makes us human, right? Is we have agency over ourselves. Everything else is non-sentient and non-agentful. So I think, you know, what's fascinating is where that sits. And, but it's also interesting that that is not a new thing. The anxiety about things that come to life <laughs> of their own accord that shouldn't is an anxiety of hundreds of years in the making. Um, you know, from Gollum through Frankenstein to, you know, the Terminators. <laughs> there is an anxiety about things taking on life. But I think you're right to ask the question about agency and where it sits and about what that looks like in a world of things like the Internet of Things, you know, how much local agency are granted to objects on whose behalfs and how, is then also a question about uh, morality, both with a small, L, small M and a big M. <laughs> you know, how do you start to determine what the decision-making trees are, for instance, in self-driving cars? You know, self-driving car has an accident. What does it save? You know, does it save its passengers? Does it just save the reproductive age women? Does it just save the children? Does it save the property? Does it save the people outside of the vehicle? And you can imagine that those are state-based decisions. Those are enterprise-likely decisions. But those are questions that are philosophical and moral in nature, not just technical. And agency runs through all of them. And I mean, can I add something just... I mean, just quickly, it's a very big issue in terms of drones. And, I mean, there are campaigns to try and uh, discuss human rights and war crimes and, you know, what does it mean to have responsibility in war where you've got um, automated drones. So, I mean, there is quite... <clears throat> I mean, it does raise very, um, you know, difficult issues, I think. Well, one last quick question. So many people want to ask questions. Simon. pretty difficult. Um, if you don't, There's the one in the grey, the grey jumper, three back. Okay, in the well, middle. you choose, yeah. Simon. Save me. He's had his hand up the entire time. Right there. Who's Simon? The one in the grey sweater. Oh, all right. I, I mean, it's a, it's a great a, testament of the success of the event. Good, so many people want to ask questions. Better be a good and question. And there may be time in the reception afterwards to buttonhole the speakers to ask them. I've never been want. more desperate to ask a question. Thank you, both of you. It was wonderful and really inspiring. The question I have is, if you look in other areas of, 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 of life, there are slow technologies that support fast technologies, so f deep freezes support microwaves. Is it the case in the digital world that we have just sort of fast and speeding up and accelerating technologies, or are there slow digital technologies that support fast digital technologies, if that makes any sense? It's a lovely question. Huh? It is. It does. Yeah. It's a... Yeah. It's a f it's a lovely question, Simon. Um, I'm thinking. My suspicion is that unstructured data sets, this is a very arcane piece of knowledge, but unstructured data sets are to algorithms what <coughs> freezes are to microwaves. <coughs> well, I was actually... G I, well, all right, well... <laughs> 
You must have the last word. Yes, yes. Exactly. No, well, I was almost the last almost word. Almost the last word. I, know, I was just going to say I was much more thinking about electricity and actually those photos um, that you see now of those enormous data centres with um, coolers in them and, you know, incredible infrastructure, actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, hmm? I've seen several. You've seen them, okay. Incredible infrastructures that are kind of invisible to us, actually. And if you look at household energy consumption over the last 50 years, it, there's just an extraordinary increase in it. And a lot of it is electronic appliances and digital appliances and all of these recent things. And I don't think there is much discussion about the infrastructure. That was one of the things I was kind of trying to talk about, that I think people think about the digital as somehow abstract and um, floating and don't very often think about the, the materiality, the actual infrastructural matter that keeps the thing going. So thank you very much for that question. Can I just say in closing that I think all social scientists actually should take an interest in this like tsunami of technological change, which is not just related to the internet. It's absolutely not. It's going through vast areas of life. There actually is a robot stand-up comedian that's programmed to invent its own jokes and is programmed to look at the audience faces like I'm doing now and then decide, you know, how the jokes are going down. I'll tell you a robot uh, joke. Um, the, the joke goes, I, I once went out with an Apple device um, it didn't work out. She was always I this, I that, I the other. <laughs> Can I say uh, uh, thank you? Well, it's quite subtle, that, you know. Can I say thank you to our uh, two marvellous speakers? And I must say, marvellous audience as well. So you should be congratulated. Very successful event. Thank you.